Well, good morning, church. What is most important? Is it the beginning part of your life? Is it the stuff in the middle? Or is it those years towards the back end of your life? Which do those feel most important? We're in a series right now called Design Your Life. This is week number two. And it is simply the idea that so many people, and the temptation is right there for myself and everyone I'm talking to right now, are living life just drifting. And without even thinking about it, we just naturally move towards the path of least resistance. Whatever is easiest, whatever comes easiest to us, we will naturally just gravitate in that direction. Uh, we take on this belief so often um, that we are sort of victims in life. Things are tough. My marriage is lousy. I hate my job. I hate my boss. I don't have enough money. I can't. And it's as though we are just end up sort of paralyzed in that, like we have no capacity to think or plan or to make a decision or to go to our Father about those kinds of challenges in our lives. That describes so many people that I see today in our culture. When you're doing that, you are living your life by default. And what we're talking about last week and in these upcoming weeks and today is this idea, man, I want to live my life by design. Under the leadership of my God, I want to design a life that will glorify Him. So just to be super clear about this, in this church, we just don't believe that you have to live a life on default mode. That we can live our lives on purpose, by design, with tremendous clarity, with tremendous creativity and innovation and even power. You were made by God. You were made for God. And He has called us to partner with Him under His leadership to design a life that would be noble and would be joyful and intentional all for His glory. Amen? Last week, we had a case study. It was a fellow in the Bible by the name of Adam. We got to examine four very, very common things that would be in probably every single one of our lives and ask the question, are you living by default or are you living by design when it comes to your physical body, the work that you do every day, the relationships that you have with other people, and your walk with God? Very, very practical stuff. Next week, we're going to look at a great case study about a couple in the New Testament called Priscilla and Aquila. They happen to have rhyming names, which is even cooler. They literally risked their lives for the sake of the gospel. So back to my original question. What's, those, what's most important? Is it those early parts of your life, those maybe your childhood and teenage years? Is it the stuff in the middle? Is it, is it those latter years, maybe the golden years of your life sometimes it's described as, and how that all ends up? Well, I want to suggest to you today that there's not a single person here who had control over the beginning of your life. Of course not, right? No one here got to decide the circumstances of your birth. No one here got to pick their family. How's that going? No one has the ability to design those first years of your life, which is, and they can be so formative, they can really influence us for the remainder of our lives. But there's nothing that you can do about yesteryear. There's nothing you can do about yesterday. It's outside of your control. In fact, you can only leverage today. Could I put it like this? You start from where you're at. Now, some of you actually need to hear that today because you're looking back at the past and you're saying, I don't know how to design 
for my today or my future because the past was so rotten and so difficult. And can I just say to you, no, you actually start from where you're at. What about those middle years and what about those final years? What are they looking like for you? Or if you're younger, what will they look like for you? For those who think today, oh, those final years, I'm kind of already there. I would just say to you, don't stop designing your life. And the fallacy, the lie, is that, look, I'm up there now. What's been done has been done. I'm just going to go on default mode until I go to heaven. And I would just say, it's never too late to design a life with God. Never. You have today. You don't have yesterday, and you don't and not, are not promised tomorrow. You only have today, and you have that in common with every other person here. So let's take a look at our case study for today. It's a fellow in the Old Testament whose name is Solomon. Now, you think your family's messed up. Oh my goodness. Check out this guy's family. I'm not joking you. It is crazy. It's actually a royal family. So his dad is king and Solomon wants to be king. He's going to be king. But here's what happened to his family. Do a comparison, your family compared to this. I promise you, this one's messed up. His oldest half-brother is a fellow by the name of Amnon, and tragically and horrendously, he sexually violated his half-sister. His father found out about it, who was the king, a fellow by the name of David. Do you know what David did about it? He did nothing about it. Nothing at all. His half-brother found out about it, a guy by the name of Amnon. So he killed his half-brother. He murdered him. Absalom, another brother, he wanted to take the throne away from his dad, David. So one of David's generals figured this out and killed him, a guy by the name of Joab. David's on his deathbed. His dying wish is that Job would get killed for killing his son, who wanted to take the throne away from his dad. Complicated family. Here's what it says. Famously, David cries out after his son Absalom is killed. 2 Samuel, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. That's what Absalom wanted. But David wasn't willing to do that, of course. And yet, after his son's dying, he's like, I should have died. And he did nothing. He's got another son, a fellow by the name of Adonijah, hyper-ambitious kid. We're told now that David, this is the latter years of David's life, he's older, he's still the king. Guess what his son wants? Dad, get off the throne. I want the throne. His mother's a woman by the name of Haggith. She puts him forward, and there's this sort of big grandiose moment where he's sort of marching to take the throne with chariots, and 50 men are running in front of him. Meanwhile, Solomon, another son, there's a lot of kids here. He finds out about this. Solomon is the product of his father, David's affair with a woman by the name of Bathsheba, sort of a famous couple here. David killed Bathsheba's husband in order to sleep with her. And when Solomon finds out that Adonijah wants to take the throne, what does Solomon do? He kills him. How's your family looking? <laughs> Not too shabby anymore, huh? By the way, what was lacking in this family? Point of application, kind of just a side point, but super important. The patriarch of the family is completely passive. The king, the king David, a man after God's own heart, he's doing nothing 
when his daughter is sexually violated. He does nothing when his son kills his son. He does nothing when his other son kills his other son. He does nothing when his general kills his other son. We've got a family, a royal family, a powerful family imploding, and he just does nothing. Parents, can I tell you a powerful word to to say to your children? Some of you are saying this like 24 hours a day. Some of you are not saying it at all. It is this word, no. And I mean it. I am bumping into more parents today that are buddies with their kids. Let's just be friends. I don't want to make you upset. You are abstaining in your role as a father and as a mother. Proverbs tells us what is wrapped up in the heart of a child. Anyone know the word? Foolishness is wrapped up in the heart of a child. A three-year-old, if they had their way, will go to play catch on 127. And it's a parent's job to say, no, you cannot do that. And that's what David failed to do. In a nutshell, David's first son killed his second son. His second son is killed by David's general. David, on his deathbed, orders that general to be killed. The third son, Adonijah, is killed by David's other son, Solomon. Does anyone have a family I mean, it may have been really bad, really bad, but in a nutshell, three internal family murders, sexual abuse, incest, adultery, murder of another woman's husband, all clamoring to take away the throne from their dad. That's our case study. That's the early years, what's most important, the early years, the middle years, the later years of your life. Finally, we meet Solomon. He's the main man now, and he gets the throne. This is the golden area of Israel's monarchy, and he is on top of the world. I'm not joking you. He is on top of the world. I don't know if there's anyone as powerful as Solomon on the planet Earth. He is young, handsome, gifted, powerful, devoted to God. He goes to worship God one day. I love this. You talk about designing a life. Look at what he does. He does something so wonderful. Solomon is thanking God for his goodness. He's just been made king. God, thank you for making me king. There's a lot of murder that's taken place, but now Solomon's king, and he, he speaks to God, and he refers to himself, this is very uncommon, as a servant king. So Solomon is king, but he calls himself a servant king. This is very, very unusual. Kings have ultimate authority and power, ultimate resources. Why would he ever refer to himself as a servant king? Yes, I may be king, but I am your servant God. I love that he's designing his life. Here he's coming into his prime and that he would refer to himself as a servant king. This is good. Unbelievably, God responds in a dream and says to him, Solomon, because you've referred to me in such a humble manner, I'm going to ask you, like, what do you want? I'll give it to you. Wow. This is like win the lottery stuff, right? Like whatever you want, Solomon, I'm going to give it to you. What would you ask for? And again, Solomon does an amazingly good, positive thing. He says, I don't know if I have the wisdom to be the king that you've called me to be, to be a servant king. Is there any chance you could just endow me with wisdom from you? And and God grants him that very, very wish. This is genie in a bottle type stuff, but that's what he asks for. God is so pleased with his servant king posture and so pleased with his request, he says, Beyond that, I'm just going to bless your life like you're not even going to believe. And he does. He's going to heap on Solomon pretty much any, every kind of blessing that you could ever imagine. 
Immediately after this comes a very, very famous moment where these two women come before Solomon because they need a judgment. They need a decision before this king who, who has the power to do that. They are two prostitutes, and each of them are claiming custody over a newborn baby. This baby is mine. The other woman says, no, this baby is mine. And Solomon says in this moment, and I want you to understand the power that he has. When he says this, it would be common understanding that this king is going to do exactly what he says. And he says, cut the baby in half. Like he's not messing around and people would go, he's not messing around. They're going to cut my child in half. And the women, one woman starts to scream and she says, no, 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 don't do that. Please don't do that. Give the baby to this other woman. And Solomon in that moment goes, then you must be the mother ready to give away your own child for your child's safety. And everyone just marvels at this incredible moment, this incredible wisdom that's beginning to be expressed and coming out of his mouth. The reason that the Bible tells us what their occupations were, these two women, they were prostitutes, is because they are the least likely to get justice. If you're a woman, things are bad enough for you in this time and at this age. If you're a female prostitute, you are the bottom rung of the ladder. No little girl grows up hoping to have that as their occupation. Nobody does that because obviously their lives are lived in the margins. Their lives are at tremendous risk. But here is a king who cares about them. They're prostitutes. Here's a king who's willing to bring justice and wisdom to the, the most unlikely to actually receive it. He's really living like a servant king. He's doing what he said he would do. And the nation elevates Solomon and they hold him in awe. In fact, not just Israel, but his reputation goes wild. Words about this remarkable servant king, Solomon, goes international. 1 Kings chapter 4, God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. This is Einstein, each, you know, no problem. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all of the people of the east and greater than all of the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than anyone else. And now we're going to get to a little passage here, and it's like major bragging on their king. This is like trash talk Bible version. Our boy is smarter than your boy. Look at what it says. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs, much of the book of Proverbs written by Solomon. His songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. From all nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Our boy's pretty smart. He just knew so much. He was so famous that rulers from other countries just wanted to come and check him out. The queen of Sheba famously comes with all these questions. No problem. He got answers to all her questions. He could explain anything to anybody. Ever heard of the phrase mansplaining? This is where it started in the Bible. <laughs> Solomon with the queen of Sheba. And as you can imagine, with that comes... Such honor and prestige and recognition and power and money and wealth and glory. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all of the other kings of the earth. His king, this king had a fleet of trading ships that would return every three years. And they, it says, it, it, it documents that they were carrying gold and silver and ivory and apes and baboons. Solomon has so much gold, he doesn't even know what to do with it. His goblets are made of gold. But my favorite part is the baboons. 
What are you going to do with a ship full of monkeys? But he's got the monkeys. It's a pretty much a way of saying unprecedented wealth in this king and in the nation of Israel. We are told that the people ate and they drank and they were happy, especially Solomon. Take a look at what he ate every day. His court, right? All those people around him. Keeping in mind that a single head of cattle can feed over 800 people. Solomon's daily provision was 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 head of pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep, goats, deer, gazelle, roebucks, and choice fowl. This man is not a vegetarian. There's no tofu on the menu here at all. And of course, it takes a lot of money to pay for this, and we actually see that at this time, the people are taxed very heavily. A wealthy king taxing them very heavily. On the other hand, Solomon was finally able to build a temple. His, da- his father David, this passive king, passive dad, he always wanted to build a temple for God, but he could never do it. God actually wouldn't allow him. David badly wanted to build it, but Solomon does. And if you ever read through the Old Testament, you can see how lavish the, uh, the products were, the materials were that went into this Uh, the detail of this temple. It's pretty incredible. At the end of it, at the end of it, you have this glorious structure. And you want to know what people are saying? They're saying, wow, Solomon, look at what you built. I mean, it's, it's fabulous. Look at the detail. This is our case study. Here he is. How do you design your life? Crazy messed up family to start with. But now here he is in his prime, in the middle, and it looks like he's good to go, right? Nothing could go wrong here. He's got everything that he needs. Everything's going. What could possibly go wrong? He's doing so well. He's doing so many great things. He really is. How will Solomon move towards those latter years of his life? Will he do so with great success? Well, watch this. Watch the cracks begin to happen. Tiny detail. We're told that the, the temple was so fabulous that Solomon spent seven years building this structure. Incredible. Look what it says in the very next verse, 1 Kings chapter 7. It took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. The writer doesn't make a comment about this. It's subtle, very subtle. But it calls you to evaluate that. Biblical writers are often very subtle. It's just a passing note. Solomon spent twice as much time on his own palace than he did on God's temple. 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking around, by walking according to the instructions given to him by his father. Does Solomon know what to do and how to live? He does. It says it explicitly here. He knew the instructions of his father. He knew the law. And then we see this. Except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. There's a little crack in the foundation of his life. Do you see this tiny little word in that scripture? Except. It's just a tiny word. Solomon showed love for God, went to worship God, followed God, believed in God, went to temple, he worshipped, he looked to God. Does that remind you of anybody? I hope that reminds you of you. Except. He did all these things that were right, except, and there's what it says, he worshipped on the high places. Well, what does that mean? It is a direct reference to idolatry, worshipping false gods. 
So people would mount statues and images on high places so they could be lorded over the people. The people would look up to them and pray to them, elevated. Solomon was loving God. Solomon built one temple for the one God, the God of Abraham, Jacob, the God of the Bible, except he also worshipped other gods. Other countries had multiple temples, but not Israel. They had one temple because there was one God. He built the temple for one God, but he's also worshipping other gods, except. i show you the really nasty side of that crack. That small comment says that he worshipped these other gods, but that also happened to include human sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of children. So all of a sudden, this guy in his prime is doing some stuff that you've got to go, wait a second. I mean, I understand you had a bad start, Solomon, but what are you doing now? He's right in the middle of his life. Except, here's a tiny word. What will they say about you? Loved God, went to church, believed God, read the Bible, except. Except his love for God was expressed in every way, but there was no generosity towards those who were impoverished. What will they say of you? Except in your sex life. Except for the anger and the bitterness that you hold on to and you indulge. Except for unreconciled relationships that you will not put right. Except for his or her use of deceit in a way that causes you to judge other people. Except for the way that you never seriously intended to be a student of God and you actually don't open up his word at all. Except for the way that you really don't intend to be a person who's marked by love. Except, except, except. It's such a tiny little word. Such a dangerous little word. I mean, other than that, Solomon was great. He's full of wisdom, built a temple, wowed the world, had the gold, had the baboons. He ate like a king. He's the smartest guy in the room. He built the room. He owns it all. And then we get to 1 Kings, where it describes Solomon's life in chapter 11. It's chronicled so many amazing achievements, such an impressive resume, such an amazing life. And then it says this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. Hmm. What you doing there, Solomon? What are these end years of your life going to look like, Solomon? Solomon, please don't mess this up. You've been given so much, way more than any one of us. Don't mess it up. You've been given such talent, such blessing, such prosperity. Please tell me, Solomon, that this is going to end well. Chapter 11, verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. This little except that we read about earlier in his history, the truth is it never ever went away, did it? It just grew and grew and grew until it turned into a great big however. There's such an odd cycle. God, give me wisdom so that 
it can bring me to success, which will bring me to prosperity, which seems to have brought me to this place of complacency, and now there's an ego, and it's leading me away from the very wisdom I had to begin with. Solomon, so wise. Solomon got everything he ever wanted, but everything he ever wanted led him away from God, who gave him the wisdom in the first place, and Solomon knew better. It said it, we read it in the Scriptures. He was aware of the instructions that his father had given to him. Solomon knew he was wrong. Solomon knew the consequences. Solomon did it anyway. However, however, accept, accept. Solomon loved many foreign women. How many? (laughs) You ready for this? The text says he had seven hundred royal wives. I'm beginning to question his wisdom. It says he had 300 concubines. Really, smartest guy on the planet. I don't think so. He married a thousand women. Here you are at the beginning of a new year. Will you live your life by default? Will you pick the path of least resistance and drift towards ill health? Will you cohabitate with except this little crack. I know it's there. I know better. I understand that, but I'm happy to co. Will you cohabitate with these tiny little cracks that you permit? Solomon, how did this happen? How could you have let it get this far? You knew better. How could somebody so wise be so stupid? Ortberg comments on this. He says, the answer is very simple, and it hits you, and it hits me too. Wisdom is wonderful, but there is another force to be reckoned with, and it will eat wisdom for breakfast. Are you ready for this? It is called desire. And it will take your wisdom, and it will chew it up, and it will spit it out. There's nothing wrong with desire. God actually created desire, but desire very quickly becomes obsessive, and then everything goes upside down. So you can design your life in God, and that is wisdom. Absolutely. Or you can live by default. You will simply live your life being rocked all over the place by your Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. This is the thing that I want today. And it will throw you all over the place. Desire asks the question, what do I want? What do I want? What do I want? What's there for me? That looks good. I want it. It looks shiny. Get it for me. I want it. I want that. I want it. Wisdom asks a different question. God, what do you want for my life? Totally different question. This is the human condition. Ephesians chapter 4, there's a fellow by the name of Paul. He actually calls it deceitful desires. He doesn't call it desires. He calls it deceitful desires. It's such an interesting phrase. Check this out. When you're deceived, do you know that you're deceived? No. No. Because you're deceived. You've been hoodwinked. You've been tricked. Deceitful desire will tell you this lie. Here's the fallacy, and you can build your life on it if you want. If I just had what I want, desire, I want it so badly, then I will be happy forever. That's the fallacy. And so many of us are living and building our lives on that lie. But of course, that never, ever fulfills. 
Desire alone is going to cause you to become a narrow-minded man, a narrow-minded woman, because desire is going to cause you to ask and answer one question singularly. What do I want? What do I want? What do I want? And this culture is exploding with that kind of narrow-minded thinking. The message is very clear. This is what the culture will tell you. Allow desire to direct your life. Go ahead. Allow it to design your life. So, if you want it, if it makes you happy, if it makes you feel good, that's what you should do. Oh, you deserve it. We'll talk ourselves into this thing. Being happy, being fulfilled, that's what's important in life. What an insane compass for your life. And this world is screaming this message. A biblical worldview strongly urges you not to trust you. Don't trust you. That's why we have this. I don't trust me. I trust God. I trust His truth. I can talk myself into all kinds of things. It, I am the worst compass for my life. Why? Because your nature is broken. Your heart is deceitful. And we think, yeah, but it's not too bad. It's worse than you think. You are worse than you think as a compass. If it feels good, do it. If I want it, get it. And in our culture, this is rampant in sexuality in particular. If you want to be this or go after that, go for it and then allow that to become your identity because you should be fulfilled by what makes you happy and then that is actually redefined as love. It's not. It is deceitful desire. Desire will ask the narrow-minded question, what do I want, what do I want, what do I want? If I desire illicit sexual gratification, right? Gratification, gratify me now. Satisfy me now. Here's what you won't think. Look at the narrow-mindedness of desire. You will not think, huh, how will this affect my wife or my husband? How will this affect my children? How will this affect my reputation? You won't even consider these questions. How will this affect my walk with Jesus Christ? What does the Word of God... You won't even... You won't even, there won't be a consideration in your mind because you're narrow-mindedly answering the question, what do I want, what do I want, what do I want? I want immediate gratification. Desire always narrows your thinking. It shuts out all kinds of thoughts that would interfere with you being satisfied and satiated and gratified as quickly as possible. And that happens to really smart people. It happens to really successful people. People who think, I got it. I know. I know what I'm doing. So you can design your life around follow your heart. What do I want? What will make me happy? Or you can design your life around wisdom. For wisdom, whether I get what I want or what I don't want is actually of very little importance to me. Because I have made a stand that I'm going to place my life firmly on the rock Christ Jesus and I've devoted my life to following what he says and not my own deceitful desires. Not getting what I want 
will not kill me. In fact, it will probably be good for me. Maturity says, this is what I want. I'm able to put it aside. An immature person cannot do that. It's actually not going to kill me to not get what I want all the time. The impulsive will just runs on desire. It doesn't ask if something is right or wrong. It doesn't ask if what God thinks about it. It just asks, what do I want? And I want what I want. In a well-designed life, it gives you the breadth, the bandwidth to stop and say, wait a second, it's not just what do I want. What is actually good here? What aligns with love? And what would my father say about what is best for me? So what about you? What's most important? The beginning? The middle? Or those later years of your life? The way you wrap that up? And I would say to you, you only have today. And no matter what yesterday held for you, you start from where you're at. It's never too late to design a life with God. So take a snapshot of your life right now. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how successful you are. I don't care how bad you have blundered. I don't care how bad your childhood or your teenage years was and all that stuff in the past. Here's the choice of a life either in default mode or in design mode. It's wisdom or desire. Which one will rule you? God is so committed to you. It's incredible what he's done to help you with this in your life. Look at what Jesus has done. He comes from heaven to earth and he faces every desire. All of them. That's what he did for you. He faces every temptation. Every lure. Every bait that is common to our lives. That you and I swallow whole so quickly. And in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus actually gives himself a new title. Speaking about himself, this is what it says. He says, and now one greater than Solomon is here. Oh my goodness. It's laughable really. This obscure carpenter who would become a penniless rabbi. No place to lay his head. Solomon has this 13-year-to-build palace with money and gold and food and wealth and power. But here's wisdom. If you're ever worried about designing your life, Jesus says, just look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil. They don't spin. The resumes don't look great. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his glory was dressed like one of these. You talk about the beginning and the middle and the end of your life. I'm telling you, nobody finished their life like Jesus. Nobody touches him when it comes to how to finish well. And he suffers and he goes to the cross and he says, not what I want, not my desire. I'll put that to one side. It's not my will, but your will. That's what I will do. And he cries out, it is finished. And it was. And so was the suffering finished. But his glory was just starting.
Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you bring to light those tiny little cracks that we coexist with? Would you reveal to us our devotion to you except in those little places? We ask you for wisdom. And because we follow you, we deny ourselves. We no longer live just for me and what I want and what I think I'm entitled to. We refuse to be slaves to our own desires because we recognize that they are so deceitful. So thank you for giving us this one and only life. No matter what kind of start we had, we thank you for giving us today. Would you fill us with wisdom that would take us through the middle all the way to the end? In Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, blessings and love.